good morning. If you've got a Bible, we are going to turn today to the book of Colossians. do invite you to go there with me. Before we dive into the scripture today, I want to just take a moment and let's just be quiet together. The world is filled with so much noise and we don't get a lot of quiet. And so let's just open our hearts and minds for just a moment to receive all that God wants to say to us today. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been in a conversation in which you asked, hey, how's it going? And the response back was something like, I'm just trying to hold it all together. I think there are a lot of people in that kind of place right now. It's a very exciting and challenging time to be alive. There's a lot of opinion, a lot of division, a lot of polarity, a lot of arguing. Everyone is right in their own eyes. Well, the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to focus on the one who truly does hold all things together. We're going to walk through the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes, speaking of Christ, that he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. I believe this one short passage forms the substance of this entire book. Because really the, the, the theme of Colossians is the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. That Christ himself is eternally before all things and all things in him are held together. Now, to give you a little bit of background, which I think is important, I think context is important, the Apostle Paul, who is the writer of this book, begins in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people at Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We refer to Colossians as a book, but it is in fact a letter written uh, by the Apostle Paul to address a very specific problem. Now, I am, I'm a chronic people pleaser. Any, any people pleasers out there? I just, I have a hard time with conflict. I don't like hard conversations. And that's gotten me into trouble more than once. And so I've begun this habit. Whenever I have to have a difficult conversation with someone, I often find myself writing a letter to them. Not that I send, but I actually sit down with the individual and I read it to them. And I do that because it helps me keep my thoughts straight. It keeps me from getting flustered and it helps me to say what I want to say in a bit of an emotionally de-escalated position. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that needed a little bit of confrontation. Now, he's writing this letter from prison. He's in a prison cell because of his his faith. He's writing to a church gathered in a city called Colossae, which is located in what is now modern-day Turkey. 
Colossae at one point was an incredibly prosperous city. It was the center of commerce and trade. But because the Roman Empire chose to move a road and divert it around the city, uh, the city began to decline. It became a bit of uh, like like a Rust Belt town. Like I grew up in a Rust Belt town. Rust Belt towns are cities that once were, used to be a place of prosperity, of economic growth, but because of the downturn in manufacturing, they kind of declined. So Colossae is like an ancient Rust Belt town. And so we have a guy in prison for his faith, writing a letter to a church in an ancient Rust Belt town to address two specific issues or challenges. The first issue is that there are some that had made their way into the church and they were trying to minimize who Jesus was. They were uh, reducing his deity. The second issue in this church was this same group of people claimed to possess secret knowledge. They became this arrogant elite and they believed that through them, all wisdom and understanding and knowledge would come, and the rest of the people were just um, incompetent imbeciles. And so the Apostle Paul is going to write to address these two issues. And throughout this letter, what we're going to find is this message over and over and over, that all of life is this incredible fusion of wisdom, knowledge, and experience, And what we do with it and how we invite Christ into those things truly matters. Now, this letter opens with an expression of gratitude and a prayer, which are contained in verses 3 through 14, which we're going to read here together. Beginning in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people. The faith and love that spring up from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that is to come. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, the Apostle Paul here is following good pattern. He's kind of like building them up first, saying some nice things about them, before he starts to go into some more difficult things. Verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. And we ask that God will fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all wisdom in understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, that you may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. In the time that we have left, I'd like to focus on Paul's prayer, in which he does emphasize that all of life truly is this incredible fusion of knowledge and experience and what we do with those things and how we invite Christ into them truly 
matters. Because I think we're all trying to hold it together in some way. Um, those that lived 2,000 years ago in their own way were trying to hold things together. And so this prayer begins that God would fill the Colossian church and fill us with the knowledge of the Lord. Verse 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. That phrase, fill you with knowledge, means to understand something clearly. Specifically, that we would understand clearly what God wants for us. That we would be filled with the knowledge of his will for our life. Most of us in this room, those of you online, have probably prayed some version of this prayer. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what is your will for my life? Should I or shouldn't I? It is one of the most common prayers prayed by people of faith. We believe that God the Father has this mysterious thing for us called his will. And part of Holding things together means understanding his purpose and will for us. Like, as a father, I have a will for my children. My will for my children is that they would grow into mature, productive adults. I don't want them to be 45 years old and living in my basement, right? My will for my children is that they would serve God. That's a hope and a will I have for them. I want my children to respect all people and be kind. My will for my kids is that they would find a career, a vocation, a calling that would not only provide them means to stay out of my basement, but also give them life satisfaction. I want my children to be healthy and take care of themselves. Now, there's a lot of freedom in how they go about doing those things. Like if my child chooses to go to college or not go to college, get a bachelor's degree or learn a trade. I don't care as long as they can provide a way for them to stay out of my basement and live a life that is productive, live a life that is fulfilling. I don't care if they go to college and get a degree in poetry, if they can use it to live and to be satisfied, to be productive adults. As a father, God has a will for us, his kids. I believe we have such a hard time discovering it and finding clarity because we have such a distorted, narrow view of what that means. Yes, God has things for us. Yes, there are expectations, but we have a lot of freedom in the expression of those expectations. Seeing things clearly has become such an incredible challenge for us because we have access to such an insane amount of information and distraction. We are saturated with entertainment and with knowledge and with ideas and with opinions. We can't get away from it for even a moment of silence. Like I go to the gas station now and the moment I start pumping gas, a screen turns on. Like, I'm like, is there no place sacred anymore? <laughs> Even, like, like, that used to be like 15 seconds of quiet. 
I believe we lack clarity because we don't have the space to process, to think deeply, and spend time in God's presence. And as a result, just lean in with me here, as a result, we lazily rely on the opinions of others without doing the hard work ourselves. I mentioned mentioned a book some time ago in a sermon, which I often do because I like to read. And I mentioned this book that I thought was good, helpful. A couple weeks later, someone walked up to me and said, "I can't believe you recommended that book. I don't. I disagree with everything in it." And I, I said, "Really?" And they shared with me why. And I said, "How did you come to that conclusion?" And they said, "Well, I googled it." I said, "I said, did you read the book?" Well, no, but I'm like. It is so easy to take one person's opinion and make it a doctrine. It's way easier to read a small slice of a webpage than actually do the hard work ourselves. And as a result, we're suffering a crisis of clarity, which is an ancient problem. It's exactly what was happening in the Colossian church. They were relying on this small group of people, those filled with special spiritual knowledge, to guide them and direct them. Knowledge that the Spirit gives requires ourselves requires us to put ourselves in a position to hear it and receive it. Now, this listen. This isn't an accusation. This is a confession. We are. I am endlessly distracted. We all are. Like I, I take my son on. We call we call them man days. My son and I go on these man days and we always do different things. I let him pick sometimes. So on our last man day, he wanted to go to Buffalo Wild Wings, which was fine. I'm from Buffalo. Those aren't real wings, but we went. It was a good time. (laughs) One of the rules that we had, that I have when I take my kids out, I also do father-daughter dates with my my daughter, is no phones. Like the phone goes in the pocket uh, and we, we do this crazy thing called talking. It's really weird. Talk to each other. We're sitting there on this man day, and I look over, and the table next to us, there's a, a gentleman and a girl. She's probably 12 or 14 years old, and I, I made the assumption it was a father and daughter. And I'm not embellishing. From the moment they walked in to the moment they left, phones in front of their face, not a single word to each other. And I don't say that like condemned. Like, I just felt sad. I felt sad at the reality of the world that I live in and the world that I've helped create. We're endlessly distracted. And because we're endlessly distracted, it is so difficult to be present to God who's all around, to to open the scriptures, this gift that he's given us. So each moment, each morning, I spend about 10 to 15 minutes in complete in utter silence, which I can tell you is very difficult. You ever spent 10 or 15 minutes, I mean, no noise, and I'm not talking about praying, telling God all the stuff you need. I mean, complete silence and and just listening. That is really hard. It's taken me, like, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but it's taken me years to just be able to sit for 10 minutes in quiet. But those 10 minutes, that single practice means all the difference between a day of calm and a day of chaos. 
And this is coming from a person who many of you know. It's coming from a person who struggles with anxiety and a sprinkling of OCD just for fun. It's hard to be quiet. And yet it's the very thing that makes all the difference in my day. Now, as Paul's praying, there's a transition that happens in his prayer. He goes on to say, and here is God's will for you. I want you to pray that God will fill you with knowledge of his will, and here's his will. His will is that you would live a life worthy of the Lord. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. We're filled with knowledge so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. That's his will. But what does that mean? What does it mean to live a life worthy of the Lord? Who's worthy? You've got to frame this passage within the context of relationship. When you consider both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the running metaphor in all of the Bible for our relationship with God is that of marriage. So whenever I think of marriage, I, I, I go back to the time in which I, I asked Rebecca, now my wife, to marry me. I went home with her to ask her father if I could have her hand in marriage, which was terrifying. My father-in-law is a Marine, and once a Marine, always a Marine, and, and he was terrifying. Great relationship now, love him, Jake's a great man, but I, I was kind of old-fashioned and wanted to ask him if I could marry her. Well, in the process, I got to meet some of the family friends, and one of the family friends walked up to me. I think I've shared this story, and if I have, just nod and act like it's awesome and new. But he walked up to me. He looked me in the eye. He did not introduce himself. He didn't say, hi, my name is, what's your name? He looked me in the eye and he said, so are you worthy? Like, what? how do you answer that question? Because if I say, yes, of course I'm worthy, then I'm like, well, I'm an arrogant jerk. Or if I say, no, I'm not worthy, then he'd say, well, why? Why do you want to marry her in the first place? Like, how does one know if you're worthy? Well, I think the question of worth has a series of expectations behind it. For instance, I'm worthy if I'm going to enter into this marriage with the notion I'm going to treat my wife with kindness and respect. I'm worthy if I, if I enter into the marriage knowing that I'm going to, I'm going to be faithful to her and not cheat on her. I'm going to value her. I'm not going to talk down to her. Right? Living a life worthy of the Lord, then as a reflection of those things and those expectations that add value to the relationship that we have. Because God himself has already proved he's worthy to us. If you skip down a few verses to verses 12, 13, and 14, the Apostle Paul writes, listen, for God has already rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, he's already proved his worth in the relationship. Paul then begins to describe for us in a little bit of detail as to what he means by living a life worthy of the Lord by naming four expectations. Good works, grit, clarity, and gratitude. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. That you would bear fruit in every good work. Our first expectation is that we, in living a life worthy of the Lord, would produce fruit or bear fruit in every good work. Like we were designed in our creation to do good work. 
We can spend hours in church, reading the Bible, in life groups, but to what end? What's the purpose? What's the expression of that? Good work simply means work that is morally excellent done in Jesus' name. So if I choose to serve the poor with my life, that's morally excellent work. That's good work. But if you're in the trades, like morally good work means doing a good job at a fair price and not cutting corners and doing it in Jesus' name, that's good work. If you're a home builder, building a really good home and doing it in Jesus' name, that's good work. If you're a parent, fighting for the heart of your children, that's producing fruit and good work, even when they're annoying and roll their eyes at you. That's good work. If you're in healthcare, if you're a nurse, you're a doctor, when you treat your patients with dignity and respect, knowing they are created in God's image and in God's likeness and doing it in Jesus' name, that's good work. All of these things are good works. You want to live a life worthy of the Lord? Do good work in Jesus' name. Secondly, the Apostle Paul mentions clarity. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, that you would grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Jesus followed in the tradition, the Jewish tradition of the rabbi by calling his first followers disciples. The word disciple just means learner, right? And you could only be a learner if you're open to learning. Openness requires that we create space in which we're open to the learning. And the learning isn't just for learning's sake. A disciple is someone who wants to be like the one who is discipling them. In other words, if we call ourselves Christian, then we're open to learning from Jesus, becoming more like him and doing what he did. So that requires that I create the space to be open to the presence of God who shows me what it's like to be like him. So when I wake up in the morning, maybe my prayer is, Lord, I know today that you've arranged for me a whole new set of experiences. Help me to be alert. Help me to be open. Help me to be enthusiastic. And help me to apply your truth to how I live. Keep me from pride and arrogance. Help me from being a coward. Help me from being dulled by distraction. Today, I want to learn from you. And then simply opening yourself to all the possibilities that God has for you that day. You want to live a life worthy of the Lord? Grow in the knowledge of him. But it's going to require the next thing that the Apostle Paul mentions. I summarize what he talks about by using the word grit. Colossians chapter 1, verse 11, he writes that you would be strengthened without all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience. Endurance and patience. Like those are hard words. To have endurance and be patient. The word endurance simply means to withstand. It means to keep going even when things are difficult. Some have called it grit. Just to keep, just keep going, keep pressing on. And it doesn't necessarily mean things are bad. Because not all hard things are bad things. Like, I, I love to ski. I lived in Colorado for 10 years, and I skied for a long time, and I just decided one day that I wanted to try my hand at a snowboard. 
just for fun. So a buddy of mine, we went to Copper Mountain in Colorado. I rented a snowboard and I spent eight hours falling. It was incredibly frustrating. I was in so much pain by the end of the day. I, I had parts of my body that hurt that I didn't know were parts of my body. I mean, it was a miserable experience. And I said, I'm never doing that again. And my friend Chris said, no, 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 let's, let's, no, can't give up yet. Someone said it takes three days to learn. We'll take a lesson. Let's just keep going. I said, all right. So I said, I'll give it three days. So the next day, fall, get back up, fall, get back up, fall, get back up, punch the ground, get back up. But about three quarters of the way through the day, I noticed I was starting to stand up a little bit. And by the end of the day, I was standing more than I was falling. And by the end of the third day, I could go down some of the time without falling. My endurance paid off. Now, when I used to ski, if you're familiar with skiing, I could navigate a blue run with confidence, but beyond that, I just could, didn't have the skill to do it. But on a snowboard, I could ride a double black diamond and not fall. Now, I'm not incredibly athletic. I just so decided to be a little bit gritty and stick with it. Keep going and keep going and keep going. As a people of faith, we are challenged every day. Morally, ethically, life does not always go as planned. Sometimes we get thrown fastballs and curveballs. We get discouraged and frustrated. We say, where is God? Why is this happening? And sometimes we just give up too soon. Endurance is mentioned over and over and over in the scriptures. The book of Romans chapter 5, the apostle Paul writes, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Romans chapter 15, for whatever was written in my former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scripture we might have hope. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Endurance and patience. Patience is the ability to suppress frustration and annoyance, particularly when it comes to people. Like if you're gonna, if you're ever gonna thrive in a community of people, Church is a community of people. It's part of God's will for your life that you're part of a community. You're going to have to have patience with people. I've heard way too many stories, dozens and dozens of stories of people getting hurt and leaving church because they're hurt and frustrated. And I get it. I don't blame you. If you have church hurt, I understand it. I've got church hurt. People say incredible things to me. It's only been amplified in the last 12 months. But it's taught me incredible endurance and patience. Listen, there are some people that are exhausting. I know I can be exhausting. Ask my wife. As a matter of fact, I am a bit of what I will kindly call myself a mild hypochondriac. And as a result, I probably email my doctor more than the average person emails their doctor. I was on a particularly bad string one time, and all of a sudden I had this thought. 
And I said to my wife, I think I'm that guy. Like, I think I'm that guy that when doctors go to doctor conferences and they talk about patients that are exhausting, like, I think that's me. (laughs) Now, my doctor, most of the time, is incredibly patient, which I love about him. Although, there was a time I had to have a bunch of tests done and he sent me the results and I didn't know what they meant, so I kept writing back, can you clarify on this? And finally, he wrote back in all caps with exclamation points, he wrote, it means you're fine, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. (laughs) Living a life worthy of the Lord, it means we follow his gritty steps. A man who was incredibly enduring and patient, so much so that he went to the cross. He endured the cross. He was patient with those who were actively crucifying him. Someone once said, we all are faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. You want to live a life worthy of the Lord? Have a little bit of grit. Don't give up. Have endurance and patience. And he concludes by saying, in all things, live with gratitude. Verse 12, and joyfully, and giving joyful thanks to the Father. I've come to believe that gratitude is more of a choice than it is a feeling. I can very easily choose to notice what's wrong. It's not that hard. Some people are optimists. Some people are pessimists. I can kind of lean towards the pessimist side. I admit it. And I've been working on it. And one of the ways I work on it is I find several things every day to be grateful for. Because I can dwell and complain about those things that are wrong. I have no lack of material. And neither do you. But what does it do? For us, what does it do to us? Expressing gratitude quite literally changes the way that you think. Expressing gratitude every day changes perspective. Expressing gratitude is something that we develop as a habit. Because I don't always feel grateful but I can always find something to be grateful for. And so as we wrap up uh, today, our worship team is going to come. We're going to pause. I'm going to ask you for a moment just to think of something that you're grateful for and offer that as a prayer to the Lord. May we all leave this place this morning with gratitude on our hearts, thankful for what Christ has done for us. Thank you, Lord, for the beautiful, amazing, confusing, and sometimes tragic gift of life. There are some here today that are doing their very best 
to hold it all together. May we remind ourselves that it, you are before all things and in you all things hold together. Would you fill us with the knowledge of your will? Help us to live lives worthy of the Lord. That we would do good work. We would have clarity. Help us to be gritty people that have endurance and patience. Fill our hearts with gratitude. For you have rescued us. You have forgiven us of our sins. You gave your life because of your great love for us. And for that, we are eternally thankful. Amen.